The Lord be with you. It's good to be with you again this morning. I know uh, from every report that I have heard that everything with uh, Dr. Lloyd went very well this week, or these last four weeks, I should say. Uh, and so I'm glad that he could be with us. I'm with you uh, this week talking about tr Bible translations. And then next week is Ask the Pastors slash Stump the Chumps. Um, <laughs> Pastor Ben will be joining me. Um, oh, you're coming next? Oh. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and if you're in the wrong class, you can go. Okay. Wow, that was one of these. Glad that I did that. So, um, Next week, Pastor Ben will be joining, and we, yeah, we will have a time. If you have submitted questions over the last few weeks, or if you have questions and want to bring them next Sunday, we will try our best on the fly. It's a little better if we're prepared, but if, uh, if, if you have some questions and want to bring those next Sunday, you can. Before we uh, jump into our topic here, can we pray together? Almighty, gracious, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of this day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to consider your holy scriptures. We would ask that your spirit, the same spirit that inspired these words throughout the ages and inspired the men and women to write the words of holy scriptures, we ask that that same spirit be with us here today. Open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, that we may receive, that we may be again inspired and learn more about your word, so that all we do and all we say may glorify you, and may increase our devotion to you. This we pray in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Come on. Okay, so as I promised, this is uh, Bible translations, and these are some of the books that I used in preparation for today's class. I have them here if you so desire to look at them. Um, but Craft of Translation, which we'll talk about first, and then we'll kind of mix these throughout the whole particularly leaning on uh, The Bible in Translation by Bruce Metzger. Uh, Metzger is, has been a huge resource for me this last year, very helpful. Uh, I'm on my third, maybe my fourth book by him. Uh, but also, uh, Invitation to the Septuagint, if you don't know what that means, you'll find out in a minute. And Targum and Testament Revisited, which will come to that as well. <clears throat> The outline for today's class, and I do have handouts, but I don't want to give them to you now. Uh, I'm, I can give them to you at the end of our time together. So uh, the outline of today's class, we're going to talk about translation in general, discussion of uh, translation techniques, a discussion about linguistic diversity in the Holy Lands, and important ancient and modern translations. So first we move on to uh, translations in Oop, no, first we move on to a quote. Um, this is from Rabbi uh, Yudah ben Eli. He says, He who translates a verse quite literally is a liar, while he who adds anything thereto is a blasphemer. So, yeah, what's in between? I don't know. I don't know. I think this is a case of you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. I'm not really sure. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing to consider. Okay. So these, this comes from um, this book, The Craft of Translation, here, which I had to read in undergrad for my Spanish degree. Um, but 
as we consider what it means to translate, we have to consider the multiple facets of translation. And one of those, it's not just, I look at it, I translate. There's a lot that goes on in translation. And so uh, the editors of this book uh, would contend, they say that all acts of translation begin with a thorough investigation of the reading process. Translators, by necessity, read each word and sentence at least as carefully as the critic or scholar. And even the smallest detail in a text, as Gregory Rabassa, who we'll talk about in another minute here, points out, cannot be neglected. Reading itself is already translation. So even if you only know English, if you read, that is already translation. And what we mean by that is reading is a generator of uncertainties, right? So the way that you read a, a novel and the way that I read a novel, when we imagine that in our minds, when we put it together, it's going to be a little different. Unless you see the movie and then you, you know, we're all seeing the same thing. But uh, in the translation process, there are no necessarily definitive answers, only attempts at solutions in response to states of uncertainties generated by the interaction of words, semantic fields, and sounds. If that's confusing, we'll dig into that here in a moment. And this is, again, crafted translation. So Gregory Rabassa, who is, uh, if you've any, ever read um, 100 Years of Solitude, anyone ever read 100 Years of Solitude or in Love in the Time of Cholera? Nobody reads uh, all of this? Okay, you've heard of them at the very least. If you know of those in English, Gregory Rabassa is the reason why. He is the translator for... Um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who is the author of those books in Spanish. Gregory Rabassa is the translator there. So he says, um, lots of people like to think that translation is arithmetic, right? So dog is perro, period. That's it. There's nothing else to be done. That's not quite the case. He would say um, that we a word is nothing but a metaphor for an object. A word is nothing but a metaphor for an object. And like words, no two metaphors are alike, regardless of similarity. So consider dog versus perro. Perro is the Spanish word for dog. Choose any language you want, right? If you, if you know dog in any other language. But based on the culture in which that language is spoken, based on the sounds of the word, the connotation, everything changes. So in Jesus' time, dogs were not pets. Dogs were in the streets. Dogs were thought to be dirty and filthy animals that were a nuisance, right? If you have a pet at home right now that is a dog, that would not have made sense to someone in the first century. If they said dog in Aramaic, and you said, oh, it's my dog, and they said, what's a dog? Yeah, that's disgusting. Why is it in your house, right? There is a difference there. It's not... Dog equals dog. It is, well, there's a cultural aspect here going on. Also consider for a moment the word uh, in Spanish, which is rama. Rama can be translated as limb, as in ramification, right? Um, and limb, we already know, means something like tree or arm or leg. Uh-oh, Kevin's back. <laughs> Ah, uh, he couldn't stay away. He couldn't stay away. <clears throat> or rama can also be translated as branch. And branch means tree or, or bank, like the branch, that, that Huntington branch 
at Huntington Bank right there on, on, at Washington Square. That's the branch. But, so this is exploring the word's meaning and the, how we can translate this word. However, the nuance of ra, rama as arm or leg in Spanish, that doesn't exist. So if you translate rama as limb, and then you see the word, or someone else sees the word limb later on, <laughs> someone else sees the word limb later on, they may think you're trying to say arm or leg, but that's not what you're suggesting at all. So there's, there's, it's complicated. Translation is complicated. It's not one equals one. As even Rabasa points out, he would say one does not equal one because that one is earlier than that other one. There are different placements on the page. There's all sorts of nuance to this. Rabasa would also say that words and phrases are not just descriptions of the circumstances entailed or objects of the circumstances entailed, but more often than not denoted the spirit involved. Um, and there's always another possibility, right? Rama has two possibilities there. Rabasa would say, you can always choose another word. Translation is a disturbing craft because there's precious little certainty about what we are doing. We can never be sure of ourselves. That is not to say we don't know what a text is saying. But from the perspective of the translator, there's always uncertainty. There's always a, a question of, is this wholly correct? And this all comes from, if you're wondering why there are snowflakes up here, it's because uh, Rabasa's article is called, No Two Snowflakes Are Alike, right? So just as no two snowflakes are alike, Rabasa would say, no two words are alike. Even in different languages, perro versus dog, they're still two different snowflakes. They might look a lot alike, but zoom in a little further, and they are different. Okay. Okay, so what Bibles do we read? This is audience participation time. Shout it out. What kind of Bibles do we read? NIV, okay. RSV. Who said RSV? Oh, great. Okay, wonderful. NRSV? Anybody else? ESV? King James. Ooh. And the new King James, okay. So what? <laughs> okay, the children's Bible. Um, I think all of those that I just heard were in English. Uh, I don't think anyone, anyone reading the Bible in Latin or, or Aramaic or Greek or Hebrew that I need to know about? We'll be fast friends. Okay. So even though those Bibles are in English, not the original languages, that is Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, do we believe that those are still inspired? Good. You were here for the class I taught a few months ago. Okay. So now we're going to talk about just translation in general. So an obvious reason why English versions differ from one another is this slow, ongoing modification of the English language. Who is a grandparent here? Who is a grandparent here or a great-grandparent? Do you ever have an occasion where your grandchildren will say something and you're like, what did they just say? Not because they're little and you can't understand them, but because they used a word that you've like, what is that? Okay, that is demonstration. That is demonstrating, or it could just be your child, I don't know. Uh, could just that is demonstrating that language changes. It, sometimes it's slang, but sometimes that becomes 
that becomes everyday language that doesn't just isn't just for teenagers that becomes something you say your whole life long language changes now our language is is not changing as rapidly as it once did because of globalization because of technology those are topics for another day but languages change the way we speak the way we read communicate understand the world understand god that all changes and so our translations of the bible do they need to change to keep up? I would say yes. Um, also, levels of English diction suited to a particular age group. We joked about a children's Bible, but really, if you, if you sat down with Theo and you pulled out the King James version of the Bible and started reading to it, how long would it take him to fall asleep? About, or run around. Maybe he wouldn't fall asleep. Okay. Three seconds. Okay. Right? So that is not suited to uh, three. Is he three? Or three or, almost, almost three. Um, a three-year-old. So, okay, so do we need to update terms? Um, was Paul stoned? Right? I know in my youth group, we love finding that verse and joking that Paul got stoned, Right? Whoa, that's a big difference from 1611 to the 1960s, 70s, 80s. That takes on a very different meaning, right? So if it can be misunderstood, if it can be misconstrued, do we need to update it? Uh, also, whenever Paul spoke to groups of peoples, he wrote brothers, Adelphoi, right? But was he only speaking to men? He's probably speaking to everyone. But um, so we should translate that as brothers and sisters, right? Talking to a group of people. Uh, and that's what the NRSV does. Uh, we also have the issue that uh, any translator tends to translate the Bible based on their own theologies. There is a confirmation bias. If there are options here of how this verse can be rendered, what word can be put here instead of that word, the person will try to... Will, this is not malicious. This is, just a, this is just how people and brains work, right? I think it's going to mean this because I already believe this, but I'm not, it's on a subconscious level, right? There's a confirmation bias going on. Um, and another question that we have, when we talk about translations in general, what manuscripts should we be using? Um, ver versions of our Bibles, right? We just threw out half a dozen uh, options of Bibles, right? King James uses very different manuscripts from the NRSV. The NRSV has verses the King James doesn't, and the King James has verses the NRSV doesn't. Why is that? That's because they use different manuscripts. The manuscripts the King James, the folks who ultimately, the, the antecedent translations of the King James, they did, not have good they did not have good manuscripts, or very few manuscripts. Or they liked the Latin better and they translated it from the Latin instead, right? So um, translators, modern translators, use all the archaeological findings, Dead Sea Scrolls, and those sorts of things are incorporated into modern translations, like the NRSV. So if you open up your Bible to uh, 1 Samuel 10, you don't have to do it now. You can later at home. Um, you will see NRSV, it's longer. Because in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found a version of 1 Samuel 10 that had a whole paragraph that nobody else did. And we think that that's earlier. 
all the, the scholars with more PhDs than I have, right? Um, if you're counting, I still don't have one. But uh, that's a joke back to the stained glass window class, if you were there. Um, so the NRSV said, this is earlier. We need to put this there. But KJV folks, they didn't even know about it. So it's not in there. Uh, and then the issue was down to, we talked about the macro to the micro. That's the very word. What does a word mean? Um, there's this word pim, P-I-M, pim, in the Hebrew, 1 Samuel 13, 21. People had no idea what it meant. They said, well, by context, maybe it means a file, like um, the file you use to sharpen tools. Nobody knew, because it's the only time we ever see it in any Hebrew literature. Until a few decades ago, when archaeologists uncovered a little weight that looked like this. And this is Pim, right there in the Paleo, uh, paleo Hebrew alphabet. And uh, it's not a file, it's a weight. So blacksmiths would use this. Yes, we got it half right. Something that's going on with blacksmiths. But instead of being a sharpener, it is the amount that the blacksmith charged for sharpening. Now, this theology doesn't hang on this, right? This isn't telling us if, you know, uh, Jesus was the Son of God or anything. But this is saying that what we knew then, we know more now. And so our translations need to be updated to, uh, so the, actually the King James, New King James Version updates, I believe, for this. Actually, no, that's not true. They don't use the word file. They just use PIM. And then you're supposed to go look up PIM because... I don't know what a PIM was until this week, um, and find out that it's, it's a, an amount charged for sharpening. Also, do um, in the translation process, should you try to translate figures of speech, like alliteration, um, or uh, go for clarity in the target language and forego those sorts of figures of speech? Translations of poetry, the Psalms, notoriously difficult for this very reason. Such as uh, the, lots of the Psalms are actually, um, oh, what's the word? Acrostics. Uh, acrostics, right? Where it's like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, well, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, He, all the way through. We can't do that in English because the words that we would translate don't start with the same letter. So it doesn't quite have the same beauty to it. Okay, so now we're going to talk, uh, just, to com just to run through comparisons of English Bible translations, and this is in your packet for after the class. If you want to take these home, uh, you can have this. So this is a word-for-word, -word, formal equivalence. Um, we try to retain the words and the structure as much as possible. It's accurate, but it's hard to understand. So this includes King James, Revised Standard Version, NRSV, which all come, uh, are related to the ASV. And ASB is out there too. Then you've also got the intermediate, which is not literal, but not paraphrased. It's somewhere in between. And they try to remain, maintain the original text without compromising its, its function. So it's accurate and it's clear. And it tries to stay uh, close to the, the original. So these involve... Uh, NIV, so shout out to whoever said NIV earlier. Um, and most of these we don't, most of the others on this list we don't read often. I've, I haven't encountered these much, at least in the Presbyterian Church. 
Um, but there are, here are some other Bibles. I particularly like the Net Bible. Um, it's online, it's free, and it's, it has a lot of, lot of fun notes. Uh, it depends, and it also depends. So some translations, I found, out, I found this out by reading the Metzger book this last week. Um, some translations were meant for people of other languages for whom English is their second. Um, so it, it's like the Good News Bible, I believe, is one of those that wasn't written primarily for English speakers. It was written for speakers of other languages who are learning English because they might not have the Bible in their target or their home language, their heart language. So it's a simplified version of English, uh, and it just depends. Yeah, and some of them, like the New Jerusalem Bible, is primarily in, in Roman Catholic traditions, as along with the uh, NAB as well. And then there's functional equivalence, meaning for meaning, like idiom, like we talked about uh, a few months back. Uh, in the Hebrew minds, uh, you, when you think about something, uh, you think about it in your kidneys because they had no idea your brain did anything. They thought it was a useless organ. So in the Hebrew, it talks about um, your kidneys. Well, if you translate that, oh, it's the center of emotion. That's what it is. It's the center of emotion. So, you know, uh, my kidneys are pained. Are they really? My heart is pained or my heart is full. Or, right? So do we, do we do a literal translation or do we do a meaning for meaning? And it, this is, becomes natural and easy to read. So this includes Good News Translation, which I spoke about a moment ago. Um, message is in there. I'm not sure that I agree. I think message should be on the other side of this line. Um, and this is uh, a summation of the book that we, we offered you to read for the class. The, um, uh, what's the one, Gordon? Thank you. How to read the Bible for all it's worth. This is a summation of what he says about all Bible translations. Okay. So you have this whole chart. Whoo. <sighs> Too busy. Don't worry. You've got a printout of it. If you want it, it's okay. Okay. Now I want to move on to talking about linguistic diversity of the Holy Lands. Because we need to understand that, be, that uh, because there is diversity here, um, as well as the imperialism of Rome or various empires throughout the centuries, people in the Holy Lands are multilingual in different ways. So um, depending on the location, wealthy people might speak a different language than poorer people. People in the city might speak a different language than people in the country. Right? We have a hard time, to under, we have hard time understanding this because in the United States, we're often monoglots. We speak one language, and that's it. However, think about, um, think about the diversity within English, right? If you, got, if, you're, if you are a college professor versus you are a farm worker, you may have some trouble communicating, right? Because the college professor may use different words that the farmer may not speak, and vice versa, right? Uh, I don't know a lot, a lot of things about farming, and the farmer is going to know a lot more about certain things than I do. We're going to speak in different ways and about different topics. In linguistics, this diversity is classified under the term register. So we are using different registers. And you can also think about this uh, when you speak with your loved ones. Um, do you speak differently than you do with... Um, Let's say you're someone at the, a restaurant, right? Your waiter or waitress. Do you speak differently to them? I hope so. 
I hope you're not, you know, uh, saying all sorts of things you would say to your spouse to the, the waiter or waitress. That would, that would get you into some trouble really fast. Oh, there you go. Yeah, if, if you're stoned like Paul, maybe. Oh, boy. Okay. So Jesus, uh, what we know is our best guess, right? Uh, because we don't have anything that Jesus ever wrote down. We have the Gospels. And, and based on the Gospels and based on what we, we believe about the, uh, this history of ancient Israel, Jesus most likely spoke Aramaic. That was probably his primary language, which is related to Hebrew, but is not Hebrew. But he probably could read Hebrew, right? That's what the, the Torah, the, the Nevi'im, the, uh, the Ketuvim, the Tanakh, the whole of the Hebrew Bible would have been written in Hebrew. And he was probably likely conversational in Greek. Koine Greek, which was street Greek, right? It's not classical. It's not like Plato. No, this is, this is street Greek. Um, Hebrew and Aramaic are part of one language family, broadly Afro-Asiatic, part of the Semitic group. And then Greek and Latin, which we'll talk about in a minute, are part of this Indo-European group, to which English belongs, right? Um, but uh, we uh, are part of the Germanic. English is part of the Germanic. And Greek is part of Hellenic. Latin is part of Italic, which um, we get a lot of words from Latin and Greek, but it's not our, the base of our language. Okay. So we're going to talk about, we're going to run through really four translations of the Bible today. Uh, three, three ancient, but that still actually have bearing on our thoughts and, transla- and, and translations and theology today. Those are the Septuagint, the Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible, the Targums, which are Aramaic paraphrases and expansions of the Hebrew Bible, and the Vulgate, which is a Latin translation of the whole Bible, spearheaded by St. Jerome in about the 4th century. We're also going to talk about the King James Version. I wish I had a whole other hour because I found so much stuff I wanted to share, um, but we'll, we'll get to the rest later. Yeah, we're going to skip that. Okay. So the Septuagint was the first translation ever made of the Bible. And it's po- probably the only tr- the first translation made of, of, of literary work of this size, right? So it was a huge undertaking, revolutionary for its day. Uh, nobody had ever done anything like this before. And uh, so it marks a big milestone. That's just in general. But then for us in the church, and this, by the way, comes from invitation to the Septuagint, um, if you want to take a look at these books. Um, Septuagint means 70, uh, and it refers to a legendary story uh, in the letter of Aristeus about how the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Bible, uh, were translated perfectly by 70 translators. This is about 250 years before Jesus was born. Uh, And some say 70, some say 72. uh, And the Pentateuch, right? So we're moving away from Torah because Torah is the Hebrew word. Pentateuch, penta meaning five. Now we're moving into the Greek words. Torah is talking about the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Pentateuch's talking about the same thing, but they don't use the Hebrew anymore. They use the Greek. So this letter describes that legendary story. 
Uh, And it arose because lots of Jews of the day were starting to forget how to speak and read Hebrew. But they still wanted to be faithful Jews, and so they needed the Bible in uh, their language, the common Greek. Um, But then when Christians came on the scene, uh, they, well, of course, they weren't called Christians first. They were called followers of the way. And in this era, um, they were still, they were using the Septuagint, if that was their first language spoken. So we believe that the gospel writers probably used the Septuagint. They, they didn't, they may have known the Hebrew Bible, and they may have referenced it, but they probably more likely, most of them, not all of them, knew the Septuagint as their Bible. Um, and the belief in this time, what happened was Christians really latched onto the Septuagint, and they believed it to be the divinely inspired word. And the Jews were saying, whoa, 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 what's going on here? You've taken this away from us. In a sense, they, they really latched onto the Septuagint, and the, the Jews of the era said, well, maybe we need to get back to Hebrew. And that's kind of what they did. They had a different translation of the, into Greek for a while, and then they said, we just want the Hebrew. Give us back the Hebrew. We'll learn it. Um, and so for a long time, early Christians, the early church fathers in the first few centuries said, that Septuagint, that is the Bible. There's no Hebrew Bible. That's not inspired. We are God's people. That Hebrew Bible, we don't want that. This is the Bible that God wants us to have. And so that became the, mains, the church's main source of the Old Testament, no longer Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. Um, but it was actually its only source. Almost nobody in the early church read or spoke Hebrew uh, after the first few hundred years because there was a big split. Jerusalem no longer became the center of Christianity after the first century. Uh, and it had wide influence. It is the... the um, it had daughter versions of the Old Testament in many languages. I'll spare you the list there. But the Septuagint became very important throughout the world because that was the basis for other translations. And the Septuagint remains authoritative today for the Greek Orthodox Church. And so this translation um, that is 1,600 years old more than that, actually, it was 22, I'm, I'm getting too confused here, uh, more than 2,000 years old in parts, that is still authoritative. The Greek Orthodox Church, they don't use the Hebrew. They say the Greek is what is inspired. Uh, but then in the Protestant Reformation, the reformers said, whoa, 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 we need to get back to the Hebrew. What's going on? And there's, a whole, there's whole reasons behind that. By then, almost nobody was using the Septuagint. By then, most people were using the Vulgate, which we'll come to in just a minute. Um, and, yeah. So this is, the Septuagint is important because what actually happened in the transmission of manuscripts and texts throughout the centuries, the, because the church held on to the, the Septuagint and because of the persecution of the Jewish people throughout centuries, manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible earliest of the Hebrew Bible, those are fragmentary. A few verses here, a few verses there. The Septuagint is our earliest witness to the Hebrew Bible in a, in a great majority of places. So we have to back translate to try to get back to the earliest texts sometimes. Um, 
So that's one of the reasons it's important. Yeah, and I, uh, it also uh, contains some of the earliest surviving interpretation. All translation is interpretation. I've said it before. I probably will say it three more times before the class is over. Um, and so reading the Septuagint, we understand these are not just translations, they're interpretations, and it can be helpful. Uh, some of it was used by writers of the New Testament, uh, and it can also help us understand rare Greek words, like pim. I don't know that it was the Septuagint got it right, but, um, but there were some words in the Hebrew Bible that became clearer because of the Septuagint. Um, now let's talk about a traditional translation of uh, Eruthra Thalassa, which is Red Sea. The Septuagint looked at Yamsuf in the Hebrew and said, hmm, Eruthra Thalassa. It wasn't just the Sea of Reeds, it was the Red Sea. Now, I'm going to tell you that 15 to 20 years ago in my, in my Southern Baptist days, whenever I heard anybody say this, I thought, oh, they're a fool. They don't know what they're talking about. Um, but, but I've read quite a few scholars who, who I now believe this is accurate, right? This is true that the Hebrew doesn't say Red Sea in Exodus, right? The people pass through the what? Not the Red Sea. They pass through the Sea of Reeds. We're not really sure what that is. But the Greek translator said, well, it's probably Red Sea. And we stand in the long line of tradition that follows that. We follow that. Most people still say Red Sea, even though that's not what's in the Hebrew. Um, the Sept We're going to skip over that. Uh, there's also big percentage differences, and we're not sure exactly why, but um, Book of Jeremiah is in the Septuagint is shorter than in the Hebrew. Ezekiel, uh, 1 Samuel, there's all these little sections that are majorly different from the Hebrew to the Greek, we're not sure why. Some people say that preserves a different tradition, or others would say maybe the Hebrew was added to later. Not sure. Okay. Let's now move on to the Targumim, and we'll, we'll breeze through this, because this is, in for Christian history, this is less important than the Septuagint and the Vulgate. However, the, the Targumim are important because uh, they are the Hebrew Bible in Aramaic. This is the language that Jesus probably spoke at home. Uh, and so during the church service, or the synagogue service, apologize for that, slip of the tongue there, during the synagogue service, if there was a reading of the Hebrew Bible from the page, I should say from the page, following that, the lector would often then translate on the fly into Aramaic. Eventually, what was an oral tradition then was put down into a written tradition that became known as the Targumim. Yep, I got all that. Okay, so here is just one page of the Pentateuch, uh, but this is with Targumim Ankalos, meaning that this is not just a translation into Aramaic, as we would consider it a translation, but it's also sometimes an expansion. There are things that are explained that are maybe a little difficult to understand, or there is reconciliations with the, the accepted tradition. Uh, what I, I, I wish I knew Aramaic because I'm so fascinated. If you can see, these are not just pictures. There's text in these pictures. 
So I have to imagine that there's some incorporation of story or explanation here in these, these pictures. Debbie. Right to left, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they use they use all, uh, they use the same script too, um, but the the language is is different. Yeah, Ed. The Septuagint. What was the question? What was the first part of the question? The source from which the ah no 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 right. That's a great question. So the Septuagint, right? We do not have, the question was, do we have the source or the, trans, the, the, uh, the translation was based on from the Septuagint? The answer is we do not. But with the Septuagint, that's why it is the earliest um, witness to the Hebrew. Because we believe that the, trans, the Septuagint was translated from an earlier uh, book, or an earlier uh, version of the Hebrew Bible than we have access to. So uh, here's another, here's a Scrabble word for you, if you want another Scrabble word. The, the, those who study the Septuagint, they try to back-translate to get to the Hebrew in order to, here's the word, to get to the vorlage, V-O-R-L-A-G-E. They want to get back to the original, but they don't have it. They don't have it written down anywhere, so they have to back-translate it. Edith. Ah, yes, so Dead Sea Scrolls, um, I, believe, uh, I believe the majority of the Dead Sea Scrolls, well, it's a mixed bag, right? Dead Sea Scrolls were helpful, um, and they had some Hebrew, um, Hebrew papyri all over the place uh, throughout these caves. Some of them attested, like we spoke about earlier, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls helped to uh, expand 1 Samuel 10. There was a, a whole paragraph that didn't make it into what, uh, what modern Bibles had until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. So they helped to expand and they, they helped to clarify, but it also became a little harder to know what's what. Um, that's a great question that I don't know the answer to. I think it's... I think... Yeah, I, it goes verse by verse. And the problem is that because the Dead Sea Scrolls are so ancient and fragmentary, it's really hard to get a good picture. It's like having three puzzle pieces to this puzzle and this puzzle, and how do they fit together? We're just not sure. So I, I think that there is, some scholars jump on board and say, yes, this is the earlier, this is the vorlage, this is what we've been trying to get to. This is what the Septuagint was translated from, and other people are saying, that's, you really want that to be the case, but that's not the case. So there's, the scholars are in debate about that. Okay. Um, do, 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 do. We're going to skip this. Um, the reason that the Targumim are important and uh, for New Testament studies in particular is because there's, if you read the Targumim and you read the New Testament, there are echoes of one in the other. So the prodigal son uh, in Luke confesses, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And to sin before is a phrase not found in any Hebrew text, not, and it's not even found in the Septuagint. The expression to uh, sin against is found there, but to sin before is a good Targumic phrase, another Scrabble word if you're looking for one, um, and is generally used when referring to a sin against God. So 
uh, is Jesus, when Jesus is speaking to the crowds and telling them this story about the prodigal son, and then the son says, I have sinned against heaven and before you. They all know the Targums, the Targumim, right? That's what they hear in the Aramaic, their heart translation every single week. So when they hear it before you, do they think, oh, I get it now. The father is God. And we're like the prodigal son. Is that what they get? Uh, Also lots of phrases, this world, the world to come, resurrection, judgment, Gehenna, paradise. These are all found um, in the Palestinian Targum. Uh, We're going to skip this. And some people have suggested that uh, the Targums refer, um, they, like, they don't like to talk about God directly. They like to talk around God, right? Um, they don't want to say that we saw God, but we saw the glory of God, or we, we were in the presence of God, but we, you know, there's certain things you can't talk about, certain things you can't do. So uh, rather than God said or God gave, maybe they'll say the word spoke. In uh, Aramaic, that word, word is memra. Some scholars out there say this was the basis of John's theology about the logos, right? Or the logos, that Jesus was the word of God. Jesus was God. Okay. Questions on the Targumim? I know I'm running so fast for all this stuff. I got a lot to cover. Okay. You do have handouts on the stuff. So if you were like, I didn't get any of that. Uh, you'll have a handout. You can maybe digest it later. Okay. So this is St. Jerome over here at his desk translating the Bible into Latin. Uh, and I'm not going to read this whole thing, but this is just from Wikipedia because it's the best summation I found, actually. Um, and in about the 4th century, he was commissioned. There were all these, um, there, there was this old translation of the Bible into Latin that was a little... Nobody liked it as much, right? They wanted something that people, they could get people around. Um, and so he went to update it. And then he said, you know what? I'll just do the whole thing. I'll just, we need the whole Bible in Latin. And we need it to be better than what we've got. So he, that's what he did. And it became known as the Vulgate, or the version commonly used. Vulgate, like vulgar, it is the word of the, like the words of the, the people, the common, common words. And for the Roman Catholic Church, which before 500 years ago, was the only church, right? The Roman Catholic Church used the Vulgate as the Bible, the Bible for centuries, centuries. And so um, theology was based on this translation, and the original languages for the Roman Catholic Church, the original languages were rarely consulted to help with exegetical questions. And this continues into today, right? So um, like any Catholic seminary or university it's rare that you'll find them teaching Hebrew. It's more likely, maybe they'll have Greek, but it's more likely that they will teach Latin so that they can read and access the Vulgate and all the the treasury of the church's works through the ages. Uh, Okay, so the theology and devotional language typical of the Roman Catholic Church were either created or transmitted by the Vulgate. So essentially... Jerome set a lot of words into Latin that we now use in English. Um, And it's because of Jerome 1,600 years ago that we still have words 
such as salvation, regeneration, justification, sanctification, propitiation, reconciliation, inspiration, scripture, sacrament, and many, many others. These are important church words, right? Whoa. And if it weren't for Jerome translating into Latin, we would obviously still have some concepts for these, but we would not be using those words. We'd be using other words instead. Uh, here's a funny story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it off and I'll read it to you so you can, you can imagine it with me here. So uh, it wasn't received well at the very beginning. Uh, lots of people knew the old Latin version, and so they said, um, that's what we like, right? Nobody likes change, even today, right? Um, and so his Latin version of the Bible, the Vulgate, provoked criticism and anger. Sometimes extraordinarily, uh, people were extraordinarily vehement and angry. Augustine tells about a tumult that erupts in a North African church. So North Africa is Latin speaking at this point. There's lots of Christians in North Africa. And during the reading of the scripture lesson from the book of Jonah, in Jerome's new unfamiliar translation, when the congregation heard that Jonah took shelter from the sun under some ivy, with one, uh, with one accord, they all shouted in Latin, gourd, gourd, right? Because that's not the, what they knew. And that, I think the gourd was actually closer to the original too, right? Um, but the reader had to reinstate that reading because he thought everyone is going to get upset if he didn't go back to the old version, right? It would be like if somebody today said, um, the Lord is my lawyer, I shall not want. Well, well, what? That's not right. That can't be true. It's shepherd. You know it's sh fine. The Lord is my shepherd. That's not what it says on the page, but if you, I don't tell you what it's going to, you know, that's, that's what it was kind of like. Okay. Uh, and then the, the Vulgate then, like the Septuagint generations earlier, the Vulgate became important because that became the, the translation that then other languages got the Bible in. Okay. Um, what was the forbidden fruit that Adam and Eve ate? Fruit? I got fruit? Oh, I got an apple? Anybody else? Was it? Tree fruit. Nice, nice. Okay. So if you can, if you squint re, uh, really hard, this is an apple tree. Adam and Eve are standing behind uh, or in front of an apple tree. Lots of us know that this is. Uh, lots of a lot of people think it's an apple. It's not an apple. I'm glad that you were not fooled by that. Um, uh, so Jerome translated the word. Peri, which is the Hebrew word for fruit, just general fruit, as mollus. Mollus in Latin means apple, apple tree more, but it also means evil. So Jerome is putting a pun into the text that wasn't there before. It wasn't there in the Hebrew, but he's kind of being a joker. And he's saying, oh yeah, they ate the evil. They ate the apple. They ate the fruit, Right? He's talking out of both sides of his mouth and putting this pun into the Vulgate. Well, guess what? People latched onto it and forgot that the Hebrew just said fruit. And so they said, oh, it's an apple. And then, and then 
it began to dominate artwork through the centuries, such that German artist Albrecht Dürer's famous 1504 engraving shows the couple in front of an apple tree. And still today, the forbidden fruit is depicted as an apple. Thank you, Jerome. Okay. We depict angels with wings, and that's also not quite... Yeah, well, the earliest depictions of, of angels are actually four-legged winged beasts. Not at all the cherubim you'd want on your Christmas tree this time of year. Okay. Um, and our last, ten, a little, last little bit of time here, we're going to jump through the King James Version of the Bible. I assume everyone is, at least has a general knowledge of the King James? Has anyone never heard of the King James Bible? Okay, good. Uh, so this came about, uh, there were multiple English versions of the Bible. And some, we talked about confirmation bias and theology of various people before. Um, there were all these different translations of the Bible into English at this time. And people were arguing about it. Because that's, that's not right. That's not right. Your, whoever translated your Bible doesn't know what he's talking about. All these divisions based on the Bible translations, right? We still have this problem today. It's in some corners of the church. So King James uh, said, let's, let's get a group of people together and try to fix this. Well, the people at the conference said, we don't need to fix a thing. And he said, yes, we do. So um, he endorsed the idea of a new translation. A committee of 50 men came together. And um, we think... Or we, I have been told many times and heard through the years, it's a new translation. Not quite the case. Um, they wanted to make a good Bible better. So they used, um, well, I'll just do this here. They, the, what was the Coverdale and Tyndale Bibles uh, became the Great Bible. The Great Bible became the Bishop's Bible. And the Bishop's Bible became the King James Version, right? So it wasn't a new translation. It was a revision. Um, the base of going all the way back to these earlier versions of the Bible, they use something called the Textus Receptus. Has anyone ever heard this term? Okay, I, I see a few nods. Okay. Um, it's essentially a marketing blurb, right? We, it's, oh, it's a received text. This is God's gift to us. This is a received text. That's a marketing blurb. It was used to sell Bibles and Greek Bibles at that. Um, and people have been so super... I actually have this great translation of the Bible in my office. It's a four-volume four compendium of the Hebrew and the Greek, and it's line by line, interlinear translation. And in the introduction, this translator, editor, I'm not sure what he was, he goes on and on and on about how the Textus Receptus is the word of God and how the devil has gotten involved in the church and has led people to believe that anything besides the Textus Receptus is better, blah, blah, blah. Well, he's wrong. Um, but it is a, if you want a good laugh, I'll lend it to you because it is, it is hysterical how much he is trying to really say this is the word of God. Well, what did people do before that, came, that was published? 1,500 years, there were still people reading the word of God. Come on. Okay. Um, uh, connection with the Septuagint. Um, 
this is in the introduction, the preface to the King James. It says, the translation of the 70 dissenteth from the original in many places. Neither doth it come near it for perspicuity, gravity, majesty. Yet which of the apostles did condemn it? Condemn it? Nay, they used it as is apparent. And as St. Jerome and the most learned men do confess, which they would not have done, nor by their example of using it, so grace and commend it to the church, if it had been unworthy the appellation and name of the word of God. So how is your pre... How, how is your old... No, that's not even old English. This is like barely middle English. Um, what they're saying here, the King James translators think it's perfectly acceptable to identify uh, an imperfect translation as the word of God. They're not saying that this is the end of all Bible translations ever. This is not going to be the only word of God. Even the apostles used a different version of the Bible. They didn't have the Bible word coming out with. They used it. It was good enough for them. This is still going to be good, but it's not the same. It's not the same. Skipping over that, skipping over that. Okay, so if you have, in my Southern Baptist days, I encountered a lot of people who were King James only. Uh, I even had one person tell me that there was this translation committee of 70 people 2,000 years ago who translated the King, or not 2,000 years ago. I don't remember all the details he told me. But he was, trying to, he was telling me the story of the Septuagint. But he was talking about it in reference to the King James Version. It was only during seminary that I was like, that, that wasn't right. That was not true. And he went to a church that only used the King James Bible. He said to use anything else was wrong. It was wrong. Um, and I heard a, a sad story this week. I was talking with Dr. Carl Pace, who is going to be starting uh, the class on the writings of the Hebrew Bible uh, in just a few weeks here. So he'll be your teacher in a few weeks. And he and I met up this week, and he told me a sad story of uh, a young man that is... that is one of his students and who was told by his pastor in a very conservative congregation that, he, the, so this young man came to the pastor and said, pastor, I can't understand the King James Bible. Well, that's all they read. And so the pastor said, the pastor said, well, then you must not have the Holy Spirit with you. Right? That will stick with me. That is, that is quite a hard pill to swallow. Because you can't understand that translation, you must not have the Holy Spirit with you. So, I'm, I'm very against King James only. I love the King James. I still remember scripture from the King James. It's what I grew up on. But to only exclusively use it and say all other Bibles are not the right ones and the Holy Spirit is only with you if you can understand the King James. I think all of that is not the gospel. That is not true. That is not right. So, some questions to ask if you ever encounter someone who is King James only. Do you read the Apocrypha? Do you read the Apocrypha? How about Tobit? Maccabees? Do you read them? Well, no. Those are Catholic. But, but you read the King James Version of the Bible, don't you? From 1611? Guess what? Apocrypha was in there. I'm not saying the Apocrypha shouldn't be read. I'm just saying most Protestants say no Apocrypha, and these Protestants are saying King James Version of the Bible, which has the Apocrypha in it. So there's a little bit of incongruity there. Um, also, 
What did the church do before 1611, before the word came straight from heaven down to King James? What happened? Were all those believers bankrupt and they're all going straight to hell because it wasn't until 1611 we got the real Bible? Is that the case? And also, the third question I would encourage you to, to put, press them with is, what about the rest of the people in the world who don't speak English? Are they bankrupt and not going to heaven because they can't speak the king's English or the queen's English? What about them? Okay. Um, yeah, we've got to have time for this. Mm, that clock's a little slow, but we're just going to go for it. Okay, especially during this season of Advent and Christmas, uh, we hear this passage from Isaiah 7.14 as a prophecy of Jesus' birth. The NRSV has, look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel. At this point, you're probably one of those in that church in North Africa that are saying, Gord, Gord, I mean virgin, virgin. It's not young woman, right? Well, King James says, a virgin shall conceive. What is going on here? Matthew quotes the Septuagint and says, look, the virgin shall conceive. And that's even in our NRSV. That's in the Matthew, not in the Isaiah. But rather than depending on the Hebrew tradition, Matthew depends upon the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Hebrew says Alma, just means a young woman of childbearing age. That's it. That's all it means in the Hebrew. But then it's translated into the Greek, Parthenos, like Parthenogenesis, right? Parthenos, meaning maiden or virgin. Hebrew Bible has young woman, translated into the Septuagint as virgin, Parthenos, and then Matthew picks up on it. But then this is translated into the King James as virgin, virgin. But then the NRSV, this is why I like and appreciate the NRSV. They go back. They go back. And they say, wait, 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 what's in the Hebrew Bible? Well, the Hebrew Bible is a totally different word. It's not Parthenos, it's Alma. It's young woman. And yet, they don't go to correct Matthew, because Matthew's using a different text altogether. They use Matthew's Parthenos, and they stand in that tradition as well. So we're upholding, even within Scripture, we're upholding this different tradition. Because if you, Matthew says, look, remember, remember what Isaiah said? And you go back and you turn to Isaiah and it's like, that's not what Isaiah said. Well, this is why. This is why. Okay. Because we have, uh, we have different usages of Alma throughout the other places in the Bible, and it refers to, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, and it doesn't necessarily mean virgin there. So the I'm not suggesting that I'm not suggesting the virgin birth be thrown into a question, because we we depend on Matthew for that. But Matthew's depending on the Septuagint, and that's that's okay. He's developing that virgin theology based on the Septuagint. But the the using Isaiah seven to to give a foundation for the virgin birth of Jesus may not be the right approach. No, no, no. No, no. I'm saying that I'm saying that Isaiah Isaiah gave his prophecy in a particular time and place and that had a particular effect. Later on the church before the the Christian scriptures were written looked back at the Hebrew Bible and said we need to 
we need to read these. These are still our holy scriptures. Where is Jesus? And they found Jesus there on the page of the Septuagint. But the Hebrew Bible wasn't quite the same, the same thing. And this is just, this is where the difficulties of translation can um, make it confusing. There's nuance. Okay, so some takeaways for today. The Bible in translation is spoken to the faithful of the ages in different ways and literally in different languages. And even if the translators may say slightly different things, together through the Spirit, they still point to the truth of God in Christ. Now, if we don't know a biblical language, it is helpful to have multiple translations. This is what uh, Fee and Stewart recommend, how to read the Bible for all it's worth. Have multiple translations of the Bible. Don't just rely on one. Um, or at least have a one good one that has lots of study notes. And by that, I mean there's a little thing at the bottom that says, well, this could also be rendered, the Greek says, or other translations, other manuscripts say, but you got that, you're probably pretty good. And reading the King James can be good for devotional practices, remind us of our Christian upbringing, but it does not represent the most easily understood translation, and its textual foundation is shaky at some points. Uh, we, we skipped through that, but it is, there are some points that um, the Greek text on which it was based, the people who published that, they didn't have the Greek for some of the pages, so they had to translate it from the English back into the Greek, and it's not, anyways. Um, last takeaway, we stand among a great cloud of witnesses who spoke different languages, lived in different eras, and read different Bibles, but together we will one day join together to worship God around the throne. Amen? Amen. Let's pray before we depart and go to worship. Almighty God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day. We give you thanks for that great cloud of witnesses, the, the saints throughout the ages who read your word, be it in different languages, God. And maybe they, um, maybe they struggled to understand you. And until a new, language, until a new translation came about, we thank you, God, that you speak in spite of our difficulties in understanding, that your Holy Spirit inspires us through your word. God, we pray that your spirit would continue to dwell in us. Help us to learn your word. Help us to, to write your word upon our hearts. Be with us this day, almighty God. We pray this in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.